All right. Well, if you've got your Bibles, and I hope you do, uh, we are in John 14. So go ahead and pull out your Bible, pull out your cellular, mobile, uh, pull out your tablet. Uh, we like to be in God's Word. Like I say, we are going chapter by chapter, verse by verse. And so we are in John 14 today. And um, I just wanted to lift up to you this morning, uh, for the first 1,200 years of the church, for the first 1,200 years of the church, there were not chapters and verses in the Bible. And so uh, I would just say, okay, guys, we're going to go somewhere in the middle of John, and you all would have to find it. Uh, but in 1227, 1227, the Archbishop of Canterbury, a guy by the name of Stephen Langton, said, it might be helpful if we put chapters and verses in the Bible. So that happened in 1227, and I'm so grateful uh, to Stephen Langton for coming up with that idea and saying, hey, let's do this. And on the one hand, it's really convenient uh, for us to be able to go to a chapter and verse in the Bible, uh, but sometimes uh, it can also be a little bit confusing because sometimes we think, well, we just finished that chapter, so that incident, that episode must be over, must be some, you know, a couple days later or a couple months later, and sometimes that's true. Sometimes that's absolutely true, that you finish a chapter and a verse of the Bible, and you pick up with another chapter, and it's a completely different day, completely different group of people. But sometimes um, the chapters and verses, they're, they're, they're artificial, right? They're artificial, and things don't necessarily end. And so here we are at a place in Jesus' life, the very end of his life, and uh, it's, it's called the Upper Room Discourse. And for a whole bunch of chapters and a whole bunch of verses, it takes place, it is one event. And so John 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17 all take place uh, over this, just this dinner, this dinner meal, this time together with the disciples. And so what we're doing uh, is we're, we've chopped it up into 11 different sections, these five different uh, chapters of the Bible. Now, what else you need to know about the upper room discourse is that this is a private affair. Everybody, all the public ministry of Jesus is now done. And Jesus came to the nation of Israel to lead them to be their Messiah. But what John 1.11 tells us is that he came to his own, but his own did not receive him. So Jesus came into the world for the nation of Israel, and they said, no thanks, Jesus, we don't want to follow you. And so Jesus, of course, had this group of guys, this group of disciples, this, he had a small group, he had a life group, and they gathered together for a meal. This is the Passover meal. And so it's a very intimate setting. But in the midst of this uh, intimate setting, Jesus has kind of riled up the disciples. He's got them on edge. He's got them upset. It says that they were agitated, that they were nervous, they were concerned. Judas has just left the room. Jesus says, one of you is going to betray me. And Judas is like, all right, I got to go now. And so the disciples are kind of freaking out. Jesus also says, guys, I'm leaving. I'm going away. And Peter, you love Peter. He's like, hey, I'm going with you. And Jesus says, ah, actually, you're going to deny me, Peter. Over the next few hours, 
you're actually going to deny that you even know me. So Judas is in the process of betraying Jesus. Peter is going to uh, deny uh, Jesus. And then after the resurrection, Thomas is going to even doubt that Jesus rose from the grave. Oh, by the way, Jesus has also said to his disciples in this group, they're going to kill me. Now the disciples are thinking to themselves, are you kidding me? This is really bad news. We left our family business. We have been following you all over. And now you tell us you're leaving and that you're going to die. We left our family business for this. So they're anxious. They're nervous. And this is what's going on as the disciples are freaking out in the middle of this meal. And we're going to pick it up in John 14. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, that as we read your word this morning, that your Holy Spirit might come to us to renew us, to challenge us, and to invite us to step into these very words and to consider, God, what you might want to say to us as well. And so, God, may the words of my mouth, the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable, for you are indeed our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So what do you do when the world is crumbling around you? What do you do? How do you react? How do you respond when things aren't going your way or is the way you thought they were going to go? Now, this is not a hypothetical question for many in our congregation. I know some of you are wrestling. This is a real question. This is not let's sit around the table and just kind of philosophize. Oh, what do you do when things go south? For many of you, this is real. That's what you're dealing with right now. Some of you I know have gotten a recent diagnosis and you're like, oh my goodness, I wasn't expecting that. Some of you are wrestling through a strained relationship with someone and it's getting worse. And you're thinking to yourself, that's not how I saw this relationship going. Some of you have had some financial situations come up. And you're thinking, whoa, wasn't ready for that. Many of you have lost loved ones recently over the past few months. Many of you have lost parents. Many of you continue to wrestle with loved ones who are dying not hypothetical, is it? I know for many of you, this is real. About three weeks ago, I got a phone call from a friend of mine, a guy that we used to be in a men's group, a dad's group together. It's Friday. He said, Brian, I'm at the airport. I'm on my way to go pick up my son's body. I just learned that he committed suicide. He's 28 years old. Nobody plans for that stuff. And I know many of you are dealing with lots of unexpected, really difficult things that you didn't see coming. And now all of a sudden you're in it. And you're asking yourself this very question, now what do I do? You know, this, this past week I have learned about more people who have been uh, uh, tested positive for COVID. This is past week than probably what I knew who had COVID during the two and a half years of the pandemic. And so it just continues to go on and on. And I continue to hear from therapists and psychologists 
that we are not doing well coming out of this, this lockdown, this social isolation. Many people are struggling to get back on their feet, to figure out what it means to get back to normal. I mean, this is real, I think, for all of us. What do you do when things fall apart and you're not sure what to do? Now, if you've come to worship this morning, you're like, not me. Everything's good. I would encourage you, get in your car, go to the local convenience store and buy a lottery ticket. Because you are the luckiest person on the planet right now. Hedge your bets. Life is good for you. I'm happy for you. But it's coming. The day and the time is coming. When like the disciples, something is going to happen. What do you do? When things fall apart. Things have just fallen apart for the disciples, so let's get into John 14. Jesus says to them, Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that where you also may be, there I am. You know the place where I'm going. And so Jesus looks at the disciples, and he's given them all this bad news, and, and they know all this bad news that's going on. And then he looks at them and says, Hey, don't let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God. You also need to believe in me. And this word that Jesus uses for believe, some of your Bibles say trust. You trust in God, trust also in me. And that's a really good translation because we've been camping out on this idea of believing over and over and over as we go through the Gospel of John. Over and over and over, Jesus talks about believing. And oftentimes when we hear the word believe, we think it's just something that we do with our head, something that we think. But the idea behind this Greek word pistuo, which means to believe or trust, it's an active verb. It means to literally not just kind of think about something or believe in something, but to put your trust, to lean into something, much like you all are trusting in the lawn chairs this morning. You believe those chairs are going to hold you up. That's what it means to pistuo. Not just think about it, but actually rest and trust in that lawn chair of yours. You're taking action. And this is what Jesus is talking about. And so as Jesus says this, all the disciples are thinking to themselves, is he trustworthy? Well, they've spent three and a half years with him. And they know that he's trustworthy. Hey, Jesus, we ran out of wine at the wedding. Got it. Hey, Jesus, this woman who's been caught in adultery, what do we do? Jesus is like, I'm on it. Hey, Jesus, there's this guy born blind. I'll take care of it. Hey, Jesus, the people are hungry. Have them sit down. Hey, Jesus, there's storm out on the water, wind and waves. Jesus walks across the water. 
I mean, every time there's a situation that arises, the disciples are right there and they look to Jesus. Hey, Jesus, got it. So they know that Jesus is trustworthy in their own lives. So I want to ask you, look back over your life. Look in the rearview mirror. Has Jesus been trustworthy to you when you faced hardships? Has he been there? When you faced challenges, was he with you? Not did he fix it, but was he present with you? See, that's how we know that Jesus is trustworthy in our own lives. We look back and say, look at all the things that happened in my life. And I don't know about you, but I can see the hand of Jesus every step of the way, especially through the hardship. And so I think Jesus has proven himself to be trustworthy, just like the disciples, and I think for us as well. Thomas, verse 5, said to him, Lord, we don't know to, uh, said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and you have seen him. And we hear these words and we think to ourselves, well, that seems kind of narrow. That seems pretty exclusive. Isn't that kind of narrow, Jesus, that he is the only way? No one comes to the Father except through me. That sounds pretty narrow. Anybody else think that's narrow? I think it's narrow. You ever been accused of being narrow-minded? Anybody been accused of being narrow-minded? Nobody? I've been accused of being narrow-minded. Holy smokes. Jesus is making a very narrow statement here. In fact, it's, I think it's kind of embarrassingly narrow. As you talk to people who don't believe in Jesus, they're like, well, that seems so narrow-minded. That seems so exclusive. That seems like so few people. He's, Jesus is just so narrow. Yes, he is. He's very narrow, but here's the deal. D Jesus doesn't just say it in this passage. This isn't the only time Jesus talks about it being his way being the narrow way. In Matthew, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says this, Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only if you find it. That's narrow, folks. And we can sit and think to ourselves, well, that seems really unfair. That's so narrow. How can Jesus be so narrow? He is. And what I want to remind you this morning is I don't write this stuff. I'm like the mailman. I just deliver it. This is what Jesus says, and we got to wrestle with this. He says, I am the only way. All those other world religions, all those other philosophies, they lead to destruction. The NLT, the New Living Translation, says it's like the highway to hell. I mean, they, Jesus doesn't mince words here. People understood exactly what he's talking about, this very exclusive claim. And I would just say this. 
God made the world. God created everything we see. God created you. And God gets to choose his rules, how it's all going to work. And if you don't like this idea that Jesus is the only way, I'll just encourage you. When you become the supreme being of your own universe, you can create your own rules. But until then, this is God's world, God's rules. And we either just line up behind it and say, okay, or we don't like it. We just sit in it and we argue with it. You can do that too. Jesus is very narrow. And so we have to wrestle through with what this means for our lives. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father and that'll be enough for us. Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip? Even I have, after I have been with you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Or at least believe on the evidence of the works for themselves. So remember, Judas is in the process of betraying Jesus. Peter is going to deny Jesus really soon. Thomas is going to doubt the resurrection. And then Philip says, hey, Jesus, show us a sign. Then I'll believe. Now, I want to remind you that Philip has been around with Jesus for a long time. Philip was there when Jesus turned water into wine at the wedding of Cana. Philip was there when Jesus calmed the storm on the sea and walked on water. He was in the boat. Philip was there when there was thousands of people gathered together and he watched Jesus perform a miracle with a happy meal and feed everybody. Philip was there when four days Lazarus had been dead. It said he stinketh and Jesus raised him back to life. I mean, how many more signs do you need, Philip? How many more signs do you need to believe that Jesus is the Son of God and he is who he says he is? And I love this about the disciples. They're just like you and me. They don't get it. They disbelieve. They deny. They struggle. I mean, the disciples, when we think of the disciples, we think, oh, yeah, that's Jesus' all-star team, right? Man, what a bunch of knuckleheads. How much? Do they have to see before they start believing? A couple weeks ago, I was talking to a guy. Guy grew up in church, knows, knows the Bible, sort of, following Jesus for a while, but he's really struggling in his faith. And as we're having this conversation, he says, you know, Brian, I just need a burning bush moment. I just need to see something like the burning bush. And I'm thinking to myself, nah, it wouldn't make a hill of beans difference. I think the burning bush could show up in your front yard and you still wouldn't believe. And there's Philip. That's, that's Philip. Jesus, show us a sign. Show us the Father and that'll be enough. And I think in that moment, Jesus could have said, okay, Philip, here's what we're going to do. He rolls out a red carpet 
out of nothing, out of thin air. All of a sudden, the angels, the heavenly host, start singing, oh! God walks down the red carpet. Hello, Philip. And I think Philip would be like, hey, God, can you show me a sign so I can believe in you? I mean, this is Philip. This is all the disciples. This is us. Have you ever said to yourself, if I just had a burning bush moment, then I'd believe in God? No, you wouldn't. Because the disciples didn't. So we are invited to trust. And when we see those signs of God, to just to see them and, and go, wow, that's the hand of God. Some people will be like, no, that's just a coincidence. Okay. But I see the hand of God here. If you're looking for a sign to believe in God, you would make an awesome disciple of Jesus. Verse 12. Very truly I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing. And they will do even greater works than these because I am going to the Father. And I will do whatever you ask in my name so the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. If you love me, keep my commands, and I will be with you. Uh, ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and to be with you forever. The Spirit of truth. Of course, we know this as the Holy Spirit. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Before long, the world will not see me anymore. But you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. On that day, you will realize that I am in the Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. Whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. The one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love them and show myself to them. Then Judas, not Iscariot, said, But Lord, why do you intend to show yourself to us and not the world? Jesus replied, Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them and will come to them and make our home with them. Anyone who does not love me will not obey my teaching. These words you hear are not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me. Now there's a lot in there that we could talk about. And I just kind of want to lift out one thing that I think kind of encapsulates a lot of this. And I want to remind you in the Old Testament, God is referred to as a father, the father, about a dozen times. It's pretty rare in the Old Testament for God to be referred to as the father. But in the New Testament, God is referred to as Father 189 times. In the Gospel of John, about 100 times alone. In this passage that we just read, 17 times God is referred to as the Father. And I think that's significant. Because what Jesus, I think, is communicating here at the very end of his life is this level of intimacy. Because oftentimes in the Old Testament, when God is talked about as God the Father, the article the is used. 
Jesus takes it to a next level. He uses a pronoun. He talks about my father, and he talks about our father. And when Jesus does this in his language over and over and over, what he's doing is he's personalizing God, and he's drawing us into an intimate relationship with God. And this was very, very strange. Jesus even uses words like Abba, Daddy, which again draws us closer and closer in. And I was thinking about, you know, what might be an example for this. And I'll just say with my own kids, let's just say, for example, my kids want to, one of my kids wants to borrow the car, right? And so one of my boys says to uh, one of my other kids, the father said I could borrow the car. Now, if your child said to you, the father said I could borrow the car, you would think to yourself, that seems pretty formal. That seems a little bit distance in the relationship. That the, Now, I will, full disclosure, my kids sometimes do refer to me as the father. And I think they do it more to irritate me than anything else. But I think we can all agree, if a child refers to their father as the father, there's a distance in the relationship, right? Now, what if one of my kids says to one of my other kids, uh, our father or my father says I can borrow the car? You're like, oh, little closer, right? My father says I can borrow the car. Our father says I can borrow the car. You're like, okay, all right, a little closer. But you know what my kids say to me? Dad, I want to borrow the car. That's what Jesus is doing, is he's communicating this level of intimacy between our heavenly father and us talks about my father, our father. And then he invites us to use this same language and, and invites us into this intimate relationship with God. And so as the disciples are freaking out, I think he offers these wonderful words of this personalizing of God. It's not just, hey, I know you're freaking out. I know things are bad. And what he's saying here, dad's got it. Dad's still in control. Dad's going to take care of you. And he's inviting them to walk closer and closer with their heavenly father. This is how close God is. Frankly, this is the meta narrative of the entire Bible. From Genesis through Revelation, the meta narrative of the Bible is God with us. The Bible begins where, where there's God, nothing else. And God creates this, this human being, puts him together. God breathes the ruach, the breath of life into him. This guy opens his eyes and there's God right there. Hello. Welcome to the world. God with us. Notice the man doesn't create himself. God creates him. The man doesn't go up to God. God comes down to the earth after he creates the earth. And he, he comes and dwells among with the man. And then he says to the man and the woman, here's the deal. I've made this great place for you to have a wonderful time. Do whatever you want. You have almost complete freedom. Till the land, eat the food. Whatever you want to do, run around, enjoy yourselves. You don't even have to wear clothes. Except there's one thou shalt not. Don't eat from that tree. It'll kill you. So what does the man do? 
He eats from the tree, right? And all of a sudden, the God with us relationship has been broken. It's been severed. And so over time, what God does is he sets up this system where God can still be with God's people. We know it as the tabernacle. And as God's people traveled around, they carried the tabernacle with them wherever they went. It was a tent, and it was supposed to be that place where people met with God. It was the God with us. And finally, they said, hey, the tent is great, but let's build a building, a a, a, a temple, And the temple was always meant to be the place where God's people met with God. It was the God with us moment. And God's people continued to disobey. And of course, what they did at the temple is they sacrificed things. They sacrificed animals and they brought in their first fruits and their best things. And it was all about restoring that God with us relationship. And make no mistake about it, the temple, the sacrificial system, it was always meant to be a foreshadowing of Jesus. That one day the Messiah would come, that he would serve as the ultimate and the final sacrifice. That's what Messiah means. It means it's the, he is the last king, the final one, the final sacrifice. And when he shows up, Jesus shows up, literally, God with us. This is what we celebrate at Christmas, right? Emmanuel, God with us. He shows up in the world. He lives a perfect life. He lives a sinless life. He goes to the cross and he dies for people. God with us. He makes a way. So that after we leave this world, we can spend eternity with God. See, God with us, it's it's on this earth right now. But Jesus makes a way so that we can be with God forever and in eternity. So Genesis through Revelation, it's all about God with us. And I think that's really good news. God makes a way for us to be with him. And we don't do anything. We just receive it. We just receive what he has done because we don't go up. We don't earn our way to heaven. We don't earn our way a right relationship with God. He comes to us over and over and over in the Bible. God with us. Now, I think the tricky part for you and for me is that this world isn't finished. That Satan is still moving around on this earth. The enemy the liar, the deceiver. And he comes to you and he comes to me and he whispers a voice in our ear. And that voice is the voice of condemnation. He whispers, you're not good enough. You sin too much. You're bad. You're condemned. And I've shared this with many of you before. Condemnation is a building term. It's a construction term. And what it literally means is unfit for use. If you've seen a condemned building, you know what I'm talking about. It is unfit for use. And the Apostle Paul, he wrestles with this over and over and over throughout the New Testament. This this whisper, this voice of the enemy condemning him. In Romans 7, Paul says it this way, and you guys have heard these passages before. Why do I always do the things I don't want to do? I want to do these good things. I try to do these good things. I have intention and desire to do these good things, but I don't ever do them. On the other hand, I do the very things that I don't want to do. And Paul's wrestling. Anybody else, can you relate to the Apostle Paul? Why do I do these things? Why do I sin all the time? I don't want to, but I do it anyways. 
And then Paul comes to the end of himself and says, oh, what a wretched man I am. How can I be saved? How can I be rescued? I'm, I'm horrible. And then he writes in Romans 8, 1, Therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. Jesus says, yep, you are a wretched man. You are a sinner. You are broken. You can't fix yourself. But Jesus says, I can. And this is why I've come into the world to die on the cross for you. And so the devil continues to whisper into our, our ears, condemned, 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 condemned. And what Jesus says to you, what he's saying to the enemy, him condemned? No, 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 no. He has believed in me. She has trusted in me. And because they have surrendered their life and put their trust in me, they are not condemned. I've rescued them. I've redeemed them. I've made them whole. And by the way, I haven't just come to be with them. I've come to live in them. I've come to dwell in them. That's the, what the Holy Spirit does in our lives. The Holy Spirit doesn't just come and hang out around us and be with us and walk with us. The Holy Spirit is actually inside of you, moving and breathing and doing the very work of God. You have God inside of you. He's doing work. And he's cleaning you up. And the Holy Spirit, when the Holy Spirit comes to into our lives, it's this lifelong process of cleanup. It's this lifelong process of, of taking out the old and putting in the new. The theological term for this is sanctification. And the idea, what sanctification really means, is that God is making you holy. Now, you will never arrive at holiness until you stand before Jesus face to face. You're a work in progress. You might even want to say to your neighbor, you're a work in progress. Do it right now. Come on. You're a work in progress. I'm a work in progress. And so what sanctification does is it makes us holier and holier, not that we ever arrive until we see Jesus face to face. But what he's doing is he's cleaning us up. And I think that's really, really good news. And the best illustration I could think of as I was thinking about this this week is many of you know that my brother Dennis uh, flips houses uh, in the Nashville, Tennessee area. And what my brother will do is on a particular day, uh, he'll go down to a local courthouse. And there are houses that are, have, you know, been taken back to the bank. And they're at the bank because the, the, the person who was living in the house, maybe even uh, was paying on the house once upon a time, it's fallen into disrepair. They probably stopped paying the bills, probably stopped paying the mortgage, probably stopped paying taxes, probably stopped paying insurance, and they're just like living in it. And furthermore, they're letting that house fall apart. And so my brother shows up at the courthouse, and there's an auction. And he and a couple other guys will stand around and they'll wait, you know, for the auctioneer and they will just, you know, buy that house, that house that is unfit for use, that house 
that oftentimes they haven't even seen the inside. So he's like, hey, I'll get that house. And then the very next step, if my brother wins the bid on this house, you know what the next step is? He gets a dumpster. He rolls a dumpster into the driveway or the yard of this house. And he goes in there, usually with a mask on because it's so nasty. And this house is filled with garbage. It's filled with debris. It's filled with junk. It's filled with all sorts of stuff. They got great stories about going into a condemned house. And they get all that stuff out and they throw it into the garbage. And then they go back into the house and they get all the personal belongings. And maybe they'll find something really neat in that house that used to belong to the person who let that house go into disrepair. And then once they get all that stuff out, then they go in and they start taking out appliances. They rip out car carpet. Pretty soon, uh, oftentimes, they'll find mold and they're, they're ripping out sheetrock. They, they're, they're taking out everything. And then they'll be like, oh no, the electrical system, that's got to go too. And then they'll start pull out the electrical system and, and maybe the plumbing is bad and then they'll have to tear out the plumbing. And sometimes they'll get these houses all the way down to the studs and that house is just gutted. And then what they'll do is they'll go back into that house, they'll put in electrical, they'll put in plumbing, they'll put in sheetrock, they'll paint the walls, put in flooring, cabinets and appliances, probably a new roof. Did I get all that about right? Those, I know some of you guys flip houses. Did I miss anything there? But at the end of it, it's a process of making it new, of making it habitable, a place where you want to live. That's the process of sanctification. God takes the icky, the broken, the nasty in your life, the sin in your life, and he says, I'm getting rid of it, and I'm going to make something new. And then, you know, we, you, you probably hear people talk about God loves everyone just the way they are. And that's absolutely true. God loves you in the midst of your yuck, your icky, your sinful, your brokenness, your nastiness. But God loves you too much to leave you there. He says, I got work to do. That is a nasty vessel. Your life is broken. It's messed up. Let's do some house cleaning. And what I find interesting is that so many people who've been bought at the auction block of Jesus Christ, who have bought at, at the, the place where they were completely bankrupt, they're at the courthouse. Jesus says, I'm going to take that person. They're like, all right, I'm going with Jesus. I'm surrendering my life. I just don't want to deal with sanctification. You know Christians like that? I like what Jesus is offering me. I just don't want to clean up the mess. I don't want Jesus to clean up the mess. But Jesus invites us to clean up the mess in our lives. You were bought with a price. And when you receive that gift of salvation, Jesus invites you to walk with him. But he's not finished with you yet. And sometimes people will be like, you know, I don't like the nastiness in my life, but it's familiar. I don't like the sin in my life, but it's comfortable. I don't like the brokenness in my life, but I kind of do like it. And I know Christians that sit in their filth 
because they don't want to be changed by Jesus. They don't want to be changed by the Holy Spirit doing a work in their life. Because whenever Jesus and the Holy Spirit clean you up, it's going to require something from you. It's going to require inconvenience. It's going to require being uncomfortable. It's going to require setting aside your desires. It's going to require a lot from you. I mean, nobody wants that. Nobody's like, oh, this is awesome. We like the end product, right? We like the new house that's all been fixed up. We just don't like all the work that goes to it. That process of over and over and cleaning up our lives. But Jesus says in our, in our reading today, if you love me, if you want to be close to me, if you want to walk with me, if you want to have the Holy Spirit moving through me, through me you need to obey my word. See, this is it, right? We live in a day and time where we love the, 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 the warm, friendly, fuzzy Jesus. We just don't want to do the work. We don't want to allow him to do the hard work in our lives because it's going to require something from us. But what Jesus is saying here is if you want an intimate, close relationship with God, it's closely tied to obeying my word. Maybe I'll say it this way. You cannot have a close relationship with God if you are not obedient to his word. It's impossible. You cannot live your life intentionally over and over filled with sin and doing all the things that you know you're not supposed to be doing and be like, oh, I feel so close to God. It's impossible. And this is why it's so important for us to read God's word, to study God's word, so that we can know how are we to obey what he's calling us to obey. And when we obey, it's his invitation for, to walk closer with God, and he will clean you up. Until one day, you get to stand before Jesus in the throne. Be like, hey, not fully cleaned up, God, but here I am. Thanks for the good work you did in my life when I was down on earth. And until that day, we stand before God, we look to his word, and we strive to be obedient, not that we ever attain it, that we live into his word in our lives until he calls us home. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, that you are a God who is just not off somewhere out there in the distance, but that you have come to us in the person of Jesus. You come to us in the Holy Spirit. You come to us, God, each and every day. Thank you, God, for being as close as the breath is on our lips this morning. Thank you, God, for desiring this relationship for us and for all people. And God, help us to walk with you, to be close to you, to experience that intimacy through you. And so, God, make us faithful. Make us obedient to your word. Not that we earn favor with you, but that it helps to draw us close to you and you clean us up. God, thank you for the gift of sending your son into this world that we may know you and that we can walk with you now and always. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer.